Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. God wants you to know what He wants you to do, what He's saved you for and unto, what He's fitting you and fashioning you for, what He's going to empower you to accomplish. So Jesus says, ask and seek and knock all of those in the present tense. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. In today's broadcast, we are beginning part one of a three-part study that Pastor Sam has entitled, Jesus in Nazareth. We are in the book of Mark. We are looking at the first 29 verses of chapter six. We will consider Jesus' return to Nazareth, the sending out of the 12, and the death of John the Baptist. So let's listen in. Mark 6, 1 through 29, Jesus in Nazareth. We read here in Mark 6, 1, then he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could not do mighty work there, could not, she could do no mighty work there, ex except, and that's a great word if you happen to be needy that day, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Our last two studies in Mark 5 focused on the power of our Lord and Savior Jesus. His power over demons as he cast them out, freeing the possessed. His power over disease as he healed and cleansed those in need. His power ultimately over death as he raised a little 12-year-old girl from the dead. Now we move from, not completely from his power, but we move from that emphasis to Jesus' primary ministry, preaching and teaching the word of God, preaching the good news of the gospel, teaching the word of God, pulling people in. Now, first six verses, Jesus of Nazareth returns to Nazareth where he grew up. This is the same town where Joseph and Mary were living, betrothed, but not yet actually uh, fully married. They hadn't consummated the relationship. They lived there and then the angel appeared to Mary and freaked her out, telling her she was blessed among women and she would bear a child and they would call his name Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. Nazareth where his family, his friends, and those he grew up with still lived, still worked, still worshipped, and fellowshiped together. We read in verse 2, 
when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. This would be his common practice. He'd show up. They would recognize him, especially back home, and they would hand him a scroll. He would unroll the scroll and he would begin to teach. In fact, if you would turn over with me for a moment, we don't usually do this, but I want you to go to Luke 4, verse 16 for a few moments. Uh, this is one of the times where it's well worth going because hearing it and reading it will help it sink in and take root within. So Luke 4, 16, this is an earlier visit of Jesus to Nazareth. It was early in his ministry. He'd gone about, chosen some disciples. He was going around doing miracles, the same things that he continues to do. Giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, cleansing uh, th those who were afflicted, lepers and such, casting out demons, now raising the dead. So, so at this point, the Sabbath had come. And uh, back in Luke 4, 16, I know most of you are there. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It says he was handed the book. More accurately, he was given a scroll. They didn't have books as we know them. They had scrolls. He would unroll it. As he unrolled it, it happened to be the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So he finds the place where it was written. Look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. And as he sits down, the eyes of all in the synagogue fixed upon him. Verse 21, he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Three things I wanted to point out related to this introduction because it lays a foundation. It sets a stage for the things that we're going to be reading in this newer visit to Nazareth. His custom was to go in and read the word aloud. And I want to say this is every pastor's calling. Not all are aware of it, but we're all called to read God's word to God's people and as many of the lost as we can have stick with us through it. Every parent is charged with the responsibility of teaching our children formally and informally. The formally would be reading the word of God to them. The informally would be as you walk, as you go the way, as you lay down, as you rise up. It would be discussing how the word applies to the day. The things that are about to happen, the things that have happened, those things that we're trying to process and make sense of. So his custom an example to us. He read the word of God publicly. He read it out loud. Second thing, his anointing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said. And the Holy Spirit, who has taken up permanent residence within every born-again believer, still comes upon us to anoint and empower us to do the work God's calling us to Nothing more frustrating, I remember my pastor saying, than trying to do the work of the Spirit 
and the energies of the flesh. So first, the Spirit comes alongside. You open your heart to Him. He takes up residence inside. And then He comes upon us, enabling us not just to minister, but enabling us to face temptation and deal with tribulation and, and deal with persecution in a way that would bring glory to God. His mission statement followed. And uh, he basically comes down to anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, he, he adds. Heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Listen, if you know what God's called you to do, well, do it. Just go Nike on it. Just do it. Bye. By the way, it's so important. If you're not sure what God wants you to do, Jesus tells us how to deal with that issue. If you lack wisdom, actually James will say this, but he learned it from Jesus. If you lack wisdom, ask. God wants you to know what he wants you to do, what he's saved you for and unto, what he's fitting you and fashioning you for, what he's going to empower you to accomplish. So Jesus says, ask and seek and knock all of those in the present tense. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. How long do we ask until he answers? How long do we seek until we're sure? How long do we knock until that door is open for us? So th these are the three pictures I wanted you to see foundationally. A couple other things and then we'll get right back into our study in Mark 6. That first day in the synagogue with his family, with his friends, with his former co-workers, note they said, hey, what's up with this? Isn't this the carpenter? I like that. Because it reminds us that Joseph would have taught Jesus the trade that he was involved in. And we're charged to do that too. Not just deal with our kids spiritually, but in every possible area of their lives. So he, he stands up before those who knew him best or thought they did. He reads the word of God aloud to them. He folds up the scroll. He says, today these things are fulfilled in your ears. There's more to that, but you can go and check that out for yourself. Just read the rest of it and you ought to be able to put it together. But uh, here's, here's what happens. They are amazed. Why? They, they, they're amazed and they want to know where did he learn these things he's teaching and where did he gain the wisdom he's sharing and demonstrating? Where did he get this power to work these miracles? And of course, they remember him as a young child. They remember him as a, as a young teen. They remember a different man. But his mother... Mary, his brothers, sisters, all cited. So that familiarity, they, they knew who he was. They knew what he did. They knew his family. And it says in, that, that they were offended by him. They were offended. The word is the word from which we get our word scandalized. It's uh, an interesting word. It, it's not one we would ordinarily used today, but um, we would say they were stumbled 
or back in the day, we would say they were tripping. Or today they would say, well, they were triggered. But nevertheless, whatever you want to call it, they had trouble just processing how did he learn? Because we were in those schools. We, we were with him. We, we studied here too. We don't know these things. And, and this wisdom and this power, where does it come from? Well, we know where it came from. And they should have known they were the people of God. Jesus said to them, and we read it, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Those who know you best or think they do are often the hardest to convince. And that's what's going on here. It's just hard for people to put it together that, okay, I know you, or I thought I did, and I hear and see and listen. Though they might be the hardest to convince, they will be the most radically impacted once they're convinced. And you don't have to convince them by anything except living for Jesus in front of them. Loving them when they don't love you. Being kind to them when they're unkind to you. Being gracious when they're anything but. Because as you model what Jesus has done for you, and then they're like, okay, you got to tell me. How did you end up like this? And they're asking because they're looking for hope too, you see. And in the midst of that, Jesus had to say to him, verse 4, this gang, prophet not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, we read, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. That word, except for those healed that day is the most important word in this message. It's so important to see it. Man's unfaithfulness will never make God unfaithful. Man's ingratitude will never make him unwilling. Men's unbelief will never make him impotent, impotent to do the things he came and wants to do. They were hindered, but in the same way that their forefathers were hindered, because unbelief hinders not what God can do, because he could still do it, but it puts up a roadblock for you to receive, for you to believe, for you to move forward as God intends it says they marveled. Earlier, a centurion made note of him, maybe later in Mark's gospel, but we read about him in Matthew. A centurion, believing Jesus had no need to come to his house to heal a servant, just said, hey, I'm a man under authority. I exercise it. I obey it. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. And he said, Jesus marveled. And he said, I've not seen such great faith, not in all of Israel. None of his own people demonstrated that kind of faith, not yet, in him. And so that's one way to make him marvel. Here he marvels at their lack of faith. And lack of faith is unbelief, you see. Whole generation, the very generation delivered from Egypt, from bondage, from their suffering, that generation died. You, you know, it's aptly called in the wilderness of sin. I don't know if they named it later or if it was already called that, but it's beyond amazing to me. They're in the wilderness of sin and they are proving they belong there. 
because sin is all they do and the whole generation dies. But God's still faithful. He said, hey, we're going in. I'm going to go before you. You're going to inherit the land. I'm going to bless and flourish and use you. I'll bring forth my son, the Savior, through you. And so the next generation goes in. And that's how God does this. If, if men harden their heart and they refuse to believe, and, and they often say, and you've heard it, maybe you used to say it. If you used to, I'm glad you no longer do. But uh, I just can't believe. And a God that would, if you're that person, just wait to the end of this study. Because there's some stuff to say, no way should God allow that. If we're the one that actually knows what's right and, and God's unsure. No, God knows exactly what he's doing and he allows a lot of things we can't understand and won't understand. Some of you have a list. You're waiting. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. And I'm going to ask him why he allowed that and why he did this. You know what? You won't be able to find the list. And you won't need it because you'll be too busy falling on your face and worshiping the Lord. You will be completely amazed. You'll look around and see people and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you made it. <laughs> and you'll see that same surprised look on some of their faces. <laughs> So, so where I'm going with this is simple. Our unbelief will not stop others from believing, but it does hinder us. It can keep us. And unrepentant unbelief will keep people from God's plan for their lives. So um, what is it? You've probably heard it. If you want to make God laugh, Tell him your plans. If you want to make him marvel, just walk by faith in him. Just trust him completely. Well, Hebrews 3.12, last thing I have to say, and well, one more because the latter part of verse 6, and then we're going to get back into our actual chapter for today. Uh, beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Context there has to do with the children of Israel in the wilderness and how they saw so much and yet somehow found a way to not trust the one who had done so much for them. Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Demonstrating again. Well, that People can hear, can see, can experience, and then walk away. Well, verse 6b, the latter part here. Did I ever tell you we're back in our, our passage? Did I take us back there? Or did you just know? I actually, either way. It, it's, if you're in Mark, we're doing well. If you're still in Luke, uh, that's kind of a bummer. But nevertheless, it was all good because I was saying stuff that you can go back. You'll get the CD and that'll help. Uh, latter part of verse 6, it says, he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. It means he's just taking his disciples with him. They're listening to him. They're watching him. They're observing him. They're taking note of the responses of people to him. And the attitudes of people toward him, they're logging it all. And what he's doing is preparing them for the work he's about to send them out to do. So uh, 
chapter uh, 6 here, verses 7 through 12, we'll get a second snapshot. And that's all this really is. The way Mark writes, short little sections, they're word pictures. So first snapshot has to do with Jesus returning home to that synagogue, sharing the word and, uh, and all such things. Well, second snapshot, he will send them out multiplying his ministry, something he continues to do through us today. Third snapshot, a sobering reminder that our faithfulness to bring the word of God and the love of God and the heart of God to people often causes them to hate us, to reject us, to despise us because, well, the light of the world isn't really appreciated by those who love the darkness more than light. And that's what Jesus says the core problem is. Men won't come to the light because they love the darkness more than light. Neither will they come to the light lest their deeds uh, be exposed as evil. Well, chapter 6, verse 7 here in Mark. Then he called the twelve to himself. He began to send them out two by two giving them power over unclean spirits. Earlier, he had chosen them, the 12, to be with him. Then he would send them out to represent him. And this is always his way. We see it even here. He brings them back to him. He prays for them, no doubt. Tells them, here's where we're going. Here's what you're going to do. And he sends them out, in this case, two by two. Why two by two? Because we're told two are better than one. There's safety in numbers, and two is a bigger number than one, something your kids will learn if they go to school here at Calvary. Uh, <laughs> better than one, and bigger than one. There, there is safety in numbers. There is accountability when two are together, one watching out for the other, praying for the other. If one falls in a pit, we read in the Old Testament, the other can lift him out or her out. Also, Jesus says elsewhere, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. It's kind of good to have somebody you can get back to back with and fend off the wolves and fend off the, the uh, attack of the enemy. He says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The other thing mentioned here is he empowered them. And, and, and he did it because no one again can do the work of the Spirit, the work of God in the energies of our flesh. Verse 8 says he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not put on to tunics. They would learn a lesson I was taught very early I heard it, I logged it, I thought I believed it, but once I experienced it, I really understood it. And that is where God guides, God provides. It's not a biblical verse, but it's a biblical concept. God was sending them out to do His work. He would provide everything they needed to accomplish it. And the same is true for us. There's something called God Room. I remember reading it in Franklin Graham's book, um, Rebel with a Cause. And he talks about one of his mentors teaching him that when we get to that place where we meet our, our absolute limit, our extremity, that's where God takes over. Because as long as I can do it, my nature and most of you as well would be like, hey, I got this one, Lord. And then we're like, help, help. 
I don't got this one, Lord. And, and that's our nature. And, and what we need to know is, well, if it's going to be his work, it needs to be directed by him. It needs to be empowered by him. And when it's all done, he should get all the glory for it. Have you heard it said, or have you ever said, that you cannot believe in God for one reason or another? Well, it's impossible to not be able to believe. Why? John 6:44 tells us that Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And scripture consistently teaches that faith is not conjured up by the human will, but it is a sovereignly granted gift of God. The problem we face is our willingness to believe. And why do we struggle with that? Well, read John 3:19 where it says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico and you can visit our website ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.